Well, if you will, I invite you to join me this morning in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. And I've ha- I have lifted, listed for us there verses 1 through 33. I don't believe I'll um, get to uh, all 33 verses, um, but we'll, we'll work on a section of it this morning and see how far we go. The title of this morning's message is The Gospel Expanded to the Gentiles. Now, I have a little disclaimer up front. Actually, there's a section here beginning in chapter 10, verse 1, and it really runs in its entirety through chapter 11, verse 18. So that's a whole bulk that we're going to tackle in terms of the gospel now spreading and its full force to the Gentiles. And it really breaks down in about six nice sections there. I'm going to try to tackle two this morning. And then we'll, we'll follow accordingly. Now, that said, a disclaimer for Brother Jesse. He texted me and asked if I was going to read the entirety of that section up front. I told him no, that I was not, and I, I have changed my mind. So to Jesse's diligence and precision, I give this disclaimer. He would have had this up here for you, checked with me prior, and followed all the, uh, the dot he did as he, he, he Dotted all his I's, crossed all his T's, and I have failed him. But uh, we're going to read through it all. So sorry, Brother Jesse. Uh, We're going to read through it all this morning. And I thought uh, this used to be a common practice amongst the brethren. There would be lengthy readings of Scripture uh, with uh, intermittent commentaries or appropriate commentaries given at appropriate times. Certainly we've fallen away from that to some degree. Um, But we're going to do a little lengthy reading here, okay, just so we can get the fullness of this text, all right? We're going to do that up front. So I just want to say that up front, okay, before we move forward uh, with our our study in God's Word this morning. So that's how we're going to approach that in a little disclaimer. Now, if you will, I want to invite you to join me in a prayer of confession before we continue with our worship through the preaching of God's Word. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Father, We thank you uh, for your kindness to us, extended to us in Christ. And we come this morning as we seek to worship you through um, the preaching of your word, that we would uh, acknowledge our need, that we would acknowledge our struggles, that we would acknowledge the reality of um, uh, of our struggle with sin. And that... In doing so, we come to confess that we must have you. We must have your enabling grace to walk in righteousness. And we pray that um, you would help us and strengthen us. This is our cry. This is our heart's beat, that we must have your strength. And so we ask this morning that you would continue to do a work in us that only you can do. And that we would be your vessels. And that our lives would be lived out in obedience. And that our worship would be pleasing and honoring to you. So we come asking from you every capacity to even worship well in the smallest sense. Knowing that it's all your work in us and it's to your glory ultimately. So as recipients of your grace, we come uh, confessing and asking that you would grant us capacity to love and know you more fully. 
personally and corporately. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, I invite you to join me beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10, and we're going to read all the way through to chapter 8, or excuse me, to verse 18 of chapter 11. And then we'll pick up a smaller portion of that uh, context this morning for our, 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 our morning's sermon. So beginning there in chapter 10, verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, and some hours—excuse uh, me—some house at, uh, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier, and those who were his of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now the next day. They were on their way, and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, a lord by four corners to the ground. And there were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision uh, which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. And Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? Then they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-freeing man, uh, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, they in, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he uh, talked with him, he, he, <clears throat> he entered 
and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with, with a foreigner or to visit with him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So I asked, for what reason have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago at this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But to every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to uh, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death, hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were, uh, who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he... <clears throat> ordered us to preach to the people solemnly and to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have, believed, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. Now beginning chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them an orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, in a trance, I saw a vision, and the object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and observing 
and observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which I was staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgiving. Uh, these six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, Send the Joppa, and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, and you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, uh, John baptized with water, but you will, be, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now this morning, we're, trying, we're going to try to take uh, the first little block of that and work through it. And really, that's going to bring us down to about verse 23. So we're going to try to take that uh, block of, of the text this morning. Well, there it is in its entirety and how glorious it is. Now we're seeing here in this, in this text, um, as we would look back in this context in space and time, the, the moment that really the gospel penetrates into the Gentile world. Now, certainly, we've seen uh, that being the, kind of the, the preview there with the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Where that man was a symbolic picture, although it, it truly happened in space and time, this man was uh, uh, there brought to saving faith as uh, Philip met him there on the road on his way uh, to Jerusalem. Um, so that was true. That was a real occurrence, but it was merely a, a pointer, sort of a, a precursor there of the fuller reality of the gospel reaching in to the Gentile world. And now we come to that as it will start to unfold in its fullness. And Peter, as the point apostle man there, is the spearhead of bringing the gospel into the Gentile world. And Cornelius is that recipient in this unique space and time here, this unique moment that unfolds in history while we have this apostolic age and the New Testament church is now beginning to expand out of Jerusalem into uh, uh, all the way into the Gentile world and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And so let me stop for a moment and let's go back and think with me here. What is the theme of the book of Acts? Well, let me start with this. What's the theme verse that speaks to the theme of all this book of Acts? It's in the very first chapter, and it's located after verse 7 and before verse 9. Yes, that's right. You've got it. 
Acts 1.8, right? And we see that ripple effect of the gospel going out. So that's the theme of the book of Acts. And here we come to that beautiful tipping point where the gospel really begins to expand into the Gentile world. And Cornelius and his household, that's the unique setting. He's that unique Gentile. And this is that unique moment in time where God begins to expand the gospel all the way out into the Gentile world. Now, if we think back about Peter here, who is instrumental, he's really the key apostle to bringing the gospel into the Gentile world. We think of Paul, and rightly so, in that he was that vessel that will really carry it for the most part into the Gentile world and a very glorious ministry that's laid out for us in the New Testament. But Peter's the point man. Peter's the key apostle to bringing the gospel to the Jewish, to the Jewish community and the Gentile world. Now, if you will, if you remember back, Peter was marked off in effect by Jesus himself for his apostolic ministry. And when was this? It was at the moment of Peter's great confession there in Matthew 16, where Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And there was some talk there from the disciples. And then Peter, being the impulsive guy that he was in this place, it was very uh, uh, well stated. He just speaks right up. He pipes right up and he says, you are Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ says back to him, you've spoken well. This didn't come to you from men. This came to you from God. That's right. In other words, in our context, it might be something like, uh, Peter, you got that right, son. And from that point, he really mocked him off. Because after that, he says to him, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, symbolically speaking, Peter really received two keys. It was the keys to unlock the kingdom of God. First to the Jews, and we see that at Pentecost. He's the guy that kind of turns that key. And then if you will, here in this context this morning, we're going to see the turning of that second key. And Peter's going to be that vessel of God. And God has sovereignly chose to be the means through which that key will turn the key that opens up the kingdom of God to the Gentile world. And it starts right here with Cornelius and his family. So we're going to see the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles here in this text. And I'm reminded up front of uh, this beautiful language and uh, wisdom for us who are mostly Gentiles. Really, we're all uh, all those who are redeemed from every corner of the earth is we're all children of God, redeemed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that settles it, and that's our great unity. And that's what we picture as we come to the table each time, our unity in Christ and one another. That transcends all barriers. But here, literally, Peter has two keys. He opens up one to the Gentile, or excuse me, to the Jewish community first, and then the Gentile community. And the beauty of that all believers, that covers everybody, by the way. That transcends everything. That's everybody on the planet fits into those categories. And what we're seeing here is that they're all those who are redeemed out of those categories, out of humanity, are all brought together in unity. The body of Jesus Christ, the church. And again, that's vividly most uh, 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 pictured in our coming to the, to the table together. 
and unity of who we are in Christ. But here's some beautiful language from Paul. It says, speaking of this reality, he says, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you being wild branches, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, or you being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich fruit of the olive tree. Now there he is speaking about Gentiles coming in. If this is so, well, here's a wonderful, wonderful reminder. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. As a matter of fact, don't be arrogant at all. It says, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Amen? It is Christ that supports us. Wherever we come from, whatever corner of the earth uh, we are born into, whatever our circumstances are, whatever our social setting is in life, whatever our political uh, ramifications are in life, whatever our context and time might be, wherever God might move us uh, in our, our journey as Christians, we are supported by the root that is Christ. And we have that all in common. That is our great bond, our great unity, our great fellowship, our great love that transcends all the barriers that are erected in a fallen world. That's the beauty of who we are in Christ. We are all sinners saved by grace. And there we all have level footing. There's an equality among us. We're all guilty, deserving God's wrath, and we've all been lavished by His grace in Christ. And that's our identity, period. Well, that brings us to the messenger. And I want you to see the messenger here in verses 1 through 8. Really, uh, the messenger here is, is an angel that has come to speak to Cornelius, but really uh, these few verses give us a little insight into Cornelius the man. So it begins by this occurrence, this unique supernatural occurrence here where the messenger will come to speak with him. And it says, no, there was a man in, uh, uh, at Caesarea named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort. And he was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and he prayed to God continually. Well, let's just read a little bit, or let's just think a little bit about Cornelius. Now, it says he's a centurion, and that means that he, he was a leader of a hundred men. There you see the, the language of the, of, of the centurion. Uh, you see the hundred in that. So he was over a hundred men. Now, a centurion in uh, the Roman army at that time was a, a non-commissioned officer. So he's basically, we might, I don't know if there's anything that exactly uh, equates, but you might think of as a sergeant major. He's a non-commissioned officer, but he has a great deal of, of authority and responsibility, particularly directly with troops. So he's over 100 men. And many have said, when we think about this, think about um, who he is and his responsibility and, and what he does, uh, there have been many over the years that will look at soldiers or, or police officers and they'll frown on the, on the probability of them even being Christians because of their uh, profession. Well, let me just say that this man blows that ridiculous notion out of the water. That fable is destroyed right here. Actually, referring to such men, Calvin in his commentary spoke to them in this manner, he spoke of them in this manner. They are warriors and yet godly. 
that speaks of Cornelius, who he is as a man. Well, what does Scripture continue to tell us here? He was um, not only a soldier, not only a, a, uh, a soldier with great responsibility, leading a hundred men. It also says in verse 2 that he was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household. Now that doesn't mean that every his household there is talking about all his family and uh, servants, male servants, female servants. So there's a lot of people here. That's not saying that every one of them are Christians. But it's saying that he led them in a godly instruction and godly worship in terms of his role of head of that household. That's what's being spoken of here. So he feared God and with all his household, uh, under his leadership, he led them to fear God. He gave many alms to the Jewish people. And what else does it say about him? He prayed to God continually. Well, here's Cornelius, a Roman cohort. And by the way, it just says that he's of the Italian cohort. Um, a media, uh, there, there may be a, a centurion that would lead another ethnic group. Rome would take in other ethnic groups and might make... Uh, um, a regiment out of other ethnic groups. So these things, he's working with a bunch of Roman men. These are all Italians. And rightly so, it could be said of uh, some, uh, some soldiers or, or the lifestyle of a soldier can uh, be quite vile. That could be true. But it's not true of Cornelius. It could be quite corrupt, the lifestyle of a soldier. But that's not true of Cornelius. And so as he led this Italian uh, um, regiment here, he led them as a godly man, a man who feared God. And it tells us there that he also led his household to worship the true God. Now, here's a man, zero background. I mean, this guy has little light. I want you to see, I want you to know up front, and we'll talk about this a little later, but this man this is true worship. What you're looking at here is genuine worship. But this man has very little light, no background, nothing to really build upon. And I want you to see what he's doing here. He is leading his family to worship the true God. He is leading them in family worship. He is leading them in godliness, in godly instruction to the best of his ability. Now, just something right up front. If Cornelius is doing this, and I would say he, was, he is doing it rightly, how much more, men particularly, should we lead our families in family worship? How much more should we, with all the light that we have, Lead our households in this manner. Take, our, take your cue from old Cornelius here who has very little light. But he is leading his family rightly. So men, savor the opportunity. Don't waste your fatherhood. Don't waste your role as spiritual leader of your homes. Young men, in anticipation of taking up that role, Prepare yourselves to lead your families well. Equip yourselves now. Don't waste your youth. Don't 
wasted on trivial things of this world. Prepare yourself to lead your family well, to lead them to the uh, right worship of God. Savor that. Savor the sweetness of worship in your home and lead your family to obey God. Also, we find out about Cornelius here that he prayed. It doesn't just, it's not just talking about that he practiced some kind of uh, a formulaic, uh, uh, wrote external type prayer. <clears throat> that's not the, 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 the notion that's captured in that word continually. What he's doing here, what is, what's being conveyed here, is this heartfelt, deep, ongoing lifestyle of laying himself before the Lord in prayer. This deep lifestyle of worshiping God in the most intimate way. And by the way, our prayer lives is the most intimate means through which we will worship God. The most intimate access you have to God, this side of glory, is your prayer life. And here is what we find him exercising. Exercising that reality of his intimate prayer life before God. It's an ongoing lifestyle of beseeching the Lord, of coming to Him with a thankful heart and coming with Him with, e- coming to him with eagerness to know and obey and love Him. So it's not just a practice of some external ritual. He worshipped God in prayer continually. And also He gave alms the Jewish uh, people now, when it speaks of giving alms, that's referring mostly to trying to care for those who are in need, the poor. So he gave generously to those from the Jewish community, which he had direct access to. Again, he's there in Caesarea, and often Rome would put, you know, about a hundred men with their centurion to guard these areas because they had a lot at stake in keeping things in place. So that was kind of fueling. Uh, the Roman machine. So they would often put a little cohort there um, to kind of keep the peace, to keep things in line. So it's very normal. So he's interacting with the Jewish community on a, a very personal and intimate basis. And he's a man that's giving where there he sees a need and he meets it. And he's giving to the poor primarily. That's something that he has a lifestyle of doing. Now, why is this? Well, it's a compassion that rises up. When we are giving to the poor, when we are caring for people in need, when we're seeing these and meeting them, that is a picture of the overflow that's in our hearts as followers of Christ. That's a natural outflowing of the compassion that's in our hearts, the transformed life. It's a normal thing for Christians to do. Now, to those who are outside of Christ do these things, Yes, they do. But they don't do them as a means of worship. That's the difference. They don't do them as an overflow of God penetrating their heart with the gospel and changing them. They may have all kinds of reasons. Some of them may be selfish or some of them may be for recognition. Uh, That's not the point. They may do them, and that can be good to some degree, to a limited degree, Uh, in terms of care, but it's not the same as the compassion that rises up in a Christian's heart to care for others, to care for those who are in need. And so we see that evident here in Cornelius. And again, with very little light, so this should prick our hearts uh, and um, give us a sweet little reminder there 
as we stand here as, uh, as those with much light. Now, at this point, he's worshiping the one true God as an uncircumcised Roman soldier. And really, he might be at a sticking point here. I don't know what, uh, we, we know what's been given to him. We know, we know his uh, daily routine of life. We know what he does. And it's glorious. But again, he's operating on little life, and he may be at a sticking point. He may not know what to do next. But I want you to take note of what he is doing. While he's not exactly sure, and all that's going to get filled in for him, but while he's not sure, look at what he does. Let's just go over this again. Look at his approach to worship from what light he has. He prays. He lives a holy life to the best of his ability, and he serves God's people. So here is a great application to us from this Roman centurion who is worshiping with, with, with little light. When you're uncertain, when there's still some gaps to be filled in, some Christian somewhere, under the sound of my voice, you still got some gaps to fill in? Amen, somebody? When there's some gaps to fill in, when you're a little uncertain, here's what you do. Wait the right way. There's a right way to wait upon God. And we see it right here from this centurion. Wait the right way. Do what you know God has instructed you to do. Go with what you got. Do what you know at this point in your Christian walk from God, from the Word of God. Do what you know to do. Pray, strive to live a holy life, and serve God's people. You get that. You know to do that. When you're waiting on some, to, to hear from God to some degree and what direction He's taking you next, wait the right way. Guess what? God will come to your aid, and He'll give you future direction, just like we're going to see Him do for Cornelius. I look with you there in verses 3 and 4. It says, About the ninth hour... He clearly, you know, the ninth hour is three o'clock in the day. So he's not just, it's not early in the morning. He's not kind of that, that, that dream state and not really sure what's going on. He's not still groggy. It's not dark where he can't really see well at night. This is in the middle of the day. And Luke goes to great length here to put this in. He clearly saw the angel of the Lord come and speak to him. So this is a clear vision here. And it's clearly an angel a messenger sent from God. And he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and there it is. There's the personal call. So he speaks to him personally, directly. And the same is true for every Christian on the planet. Your relationship with your God is personal and intimate. Now, is it ever private? Well, no, it's not. It's in a context of a corporate setting, which is most visually seen in the visual church, your local church, where you worship corporately and your, your, uh, your um, um, relationship with God is expressed in a corporate manner. That is true. That will always be true. So it is not private, but it is personal and it is intimate and it is deeply, deeply, fully intimate. And here again, we see that same language calls to him directly, Cornelius, you. God has shaped him and formed him 
knows everything about every fiber of his being, knows everything about his existence from the time he's born to the time uh, he will die, just the same as he does every human being. And here is an intimate calling from God to this man, Cornelius. So, brother, he doesn't say, hey, you on the second row. He says, Mark. Mark. There's an intimate, personal relationship here, and we're seeing it from an intimate, personal God relating to his followers. And so he calls him here. He says, Cornelius. And then fixing his gaze on him, he began uh, being much alone. That means he was fearing. He was in fear. This is a reverence. A fear because he knew exactly who the messenger was from. This messenger is from God. And he says, what is it, Lord? There in verse 4. And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Wow. So what's going on there? Well, God is speaking. This messenger is from God. So really, this is God speaking. He has something to tell Cornelius that God has sent him to tell. And so when the word of God comes to you, primarily, here we're talking about from Scripture, from the preached word, or from those who will teach from this position and this church or in other settings. So when the word of God comes to you, does it strike fear in you? That reverence fear? That's the question. It did in Cornelius. He knew exactly who was speaking here. Or do you perceive that's even God speaking? Do you get that? When we open God's word this morning and we hear from God, do you, do you get that? Or does that pass you by? This is God speaking. Does that strike fear and reverence in your heart this morning? So it says, what is it, Lord? He knew exactly who was speaking, and he responded in reverence. And here the text tells us, you know, because God has, basically because God has heard your prayers, he's witnessed your almsgiving, because of this, I've come to you. So here we have uh, something that we need to address. Now, has Somehow Cornelius worked his way into God's favor. Is that what's going on here? Because to us, now again, God is, 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 is operating in a, you know, on a whole different plane here. God's eternal. So he's not bound by space and time. But he's created history, and history has an element to it, space and time. But we, so we are. We're limited there. But God, this is just one eternal now. But for us, we're seeing something roll out in space and time. So as he worked his way into God's favor, I say that, I say that, I bring that up here because certainly that's what the Catholic Church still says. But by no means is that the case. What you're seeing here is a real reality of reward from our perspective. This is God really granting Cornelius the capacity to even operate as he is, being a faithful man. Now he's responsible to it, responsible for it, but God has given him capacity to even know how to respond rightly. That comes from God. But he is responding rightly. And in that sense, this is a reward. So we're seeing it as a response from our perspective. 
God has, taken, has made note of this. He's made note of your prayers. He's made note of your almsgiving. And here's a reward for you. That really is true in the Christian life. So our faithfulness, all to God's glory, all given by the capacity of God, but we're living it out. And as that rolls out to us in reality, that is oftentimes rewarded in ways that we're very cognitive of. Now, that's just God's reminder for us to live a faithful life. It's an encouragement to walk in righteousness. It's part of adding to our knowing Him and worshiping Him and seeing His worth and majesty in all circumstances and giving thanks for all that comes our way. And then we'll find things in response from our perspective that are God. That's, that's God rewarding us. By the way, what are there in heaven for us? Are there rewards? Is that real? Are we to understand that uh, in its basic meaning? Well, yes. Yes. And that's a good thing. That's not a works. It's not earning anything. It's just a walking in righteousness that God has lavished upon us. But there's a real accountability there. There's a real responsibility. There's a real worship on our behalf. Can we grieve the Spirit as believers? Is that true? Well, of course we can. Can we disobey God? Can we sin? Can we take our sin lightly? Of course we can. There's a responsibility on our hands. So I want you to see here, there's just that element here. What God says, it's God, if you will, I can't find a better way to say it, but God responding to worship. And he's going to give him a lot more light here, but that brings us to an important point. I say all that to bring us to an important point here. And there's a debate some time back, a few years ago, between two men. One was named Augustine, and the other was named Pelagius. And Augustine saw it this way. Faith goes before prayer. In other words, if you're to pray and you're to uh, be able to, if you will, gain God's ear in prayer, there must be an element of faith before that can be so. If you're to have intimate communion with God in prayer, ongoing worship in the most intimate way, there must be an element of faith. Pelagius countered and said this, or maybe I might have it backwards. Actually, I think Pelagius spoke first, but nonetheless, the debate went on. Pelagius said this, faith is obtained by prayer. So you in your own capacity, in your own ability, can pray and then access faith. Scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, I believe Augustine had it right. So this has been bantered about concerning Cornelius here. And so here's the question that comes up with this text. Was Cornelius regenerate before Peter preached the gospel to him? So that's what we come to here. Mm. Now, let's get this straight. Faith cannot be separated from Christ, right? right. But we had, a, we had a little help by the Holy Spirit this morning. And this has already been preached this morning in our morning Bible study by Danny. You can do, uh, with the help of, of uh, the divines uh, from uh, writing the, the confession there. And by the way, the vines, that doesn't mean anything that they're, they're holy beings. Many means that just, that was a term used back in the day 
for those scholars who got together and put together our confession. Um, so with the help of uh, the divines, and Brother Danny has done that far better than I could ever attempt, but that's exactly what we come to in our text this morning. What do we do with Cornelius here at this point? So definitely faith cannot be separated from Christ, right? John 14, 6 is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. Colossians 1, 3, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the way that we even have a capacity to understand God's mercy. Certainly, as fallen creatures, we can understand God's holiness, his otherness, his existence, his being. But to approach that, that's a chasm that we cannot cross. How can we approach a holy God? We can know of them, and that's in us. That's, that's, that's in us, even as sinners. What does Romans 1.18 tell us? We are suppressing the truth. You can't suppress it unless you know what's there. It's the truth of his being. It's the truth that's seen in all the glory of creation. Certainly we know of him. It's just that transcendence. We can't get to him. So how do we access him? How's, how do we know his holiness? We know his otherness. We can know his justice. We can certainly know his wrath. But how can we know his mercy? It's the image of God that is clearly given to us in Christ that now puts that all together where we can have justice and wrath and holiness and mercy now all put together in our understanding of who God is. He's the invisible image. Or he's the image of the invisible God. So there it is. So... Christ must be accessed if there is to be salvation. But I say to you, Cornelius was not void of faith before Peter met him and made him a partaker of Christ. He knew the promise of the mediator. He knew of them. And there was a hope. Just like the Old Testament saints who knew of the mediator, did not know that it was Christ, but knew of the promised mediator and there laid their faith fully upon him. Just like the Old Testament saints. Well, that's what you're looking at here. You're looking at an Old Testament saint in this unique setting of space and time that is going to actually be introduced to Christ who has already come. But now we're in that apostolic age and you're looking at an Old Testament saint who happens to be a Gentile. And he's going to be that guy in this unique setting who now has faith, just like the Old Testament saints, waiting, trusting in that promised Messiah to come. And to him, it's a waiting. But in space and time, he has come. It is Jesus Christ. And he has made atonement for his people. And as that now will transpire to him, we'll see this unique picture of a man who has faith. And now he gets the full benefit, the full picture of Christ, with, with, with Peter bringing him the gospel. So this is a regenerate man. This is real worship. And we're going to see that cool thing of this, in this unique setting. Again, things that are happening that are temporary, that are very unusual, but they're foundational. This is a transition period that we're seeing here in this apostolic age where the church now is beginning to grow after the resurrection of Christ. 
And we're awaiting that completion of the New Testament where the canon is sealed. So these are unique times, and you see a unique circumstance right here. This guy's a believer. You can't worship like he's worshiped. You can't pray intimately like he's praying. You can't, if you will, gain that reward of God savoring your alms giving coming up to him, hearing your prayers. That doesn't happen for the unregenerate. This guy's saved. And now he's going to meet the Savior. That's pretty cool. And we get to see it. In part today. So verses 5 through 8 here. He's commanded to send for Peter. And he does so. Now, again, um, Calvin in his commentary brought up a wonderful point I never thought of before. So Calvin brings up this, this hypothetical question. He says, well, you know, why didn't the angel just tell Cornelius what's going on? That would have been easier, right? That would have saved all this time. It's a day journey back and forth. Why does he need to, see for, why does he need to send for Peter? I mean, this is an angel from God right before him. You don't think he could have told him about Christ? Of course he could have. He could have done a better job than Peter. So why Peter? Why? Now I want you to hang on to this. Look, because this is going to be true for you. If you're here as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, this is going to be true for you until he calls you home to glory. It's going to be true in your life as a Christian. God may, may, he's going to bring all kinds of surprises in your life. Just when you think you've got God figured out, you know exactly what you're going to do, until he calls you home to glory, that'll change. He's going to surprise you. We talked about that. Acts is, is a means through which we'll always talk about that. We see that over and over in Acts. So that's going to happen. He's going to surprise you. But one thing that's going to hold true, until you come to meet him in glory, he is going to take sinful fallible men, just like you, and in some contexts, ladies, women, primarily men, because men are going to be preaching and teaching in the visible church. There will be contexts where there's personal discipleship, and ladies, it will be a woman oftentimes. But what I'm saying is he's going to take sinners it's God's will to take sinners, fallen, weak, fallible creatures just like you and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to your soul. Amen? That's His will. That's His purpose. Sure, He could speak to you with an aim through an angel, but He doesn't do that. He does something far more humbling and far more glorious. He takes wretched men and women just like you and ministers His glorious gospel to you. You know what that does? That keeps you from being so arrogant, so haughty. That's what it does. That keeps you off your high horse, and it is a glorious, glorious thing. So He calls for Peter, who's fallible. And He says, you know what, Cornelius? You're going to listen to another sinner just like you. And that's going to magnify my glory and my grace extended to what? All y'all. Okay? That's how it works. So God's going to send 
and use sinful people in your life. Now, specifically concerning preaching, because it's mostly going to be from the pulpit, here's what you do. And I've talked to you all about this before, uh, and I want to just take a moment to encourage you again. Um, find, find several preachers that you know personally, that you get to know personally to some degree, and you pray, and you pray fervently for them. Pray for them. Find you a few and just have that intimate relationship with them. Do that, uh, and it will be sweet in your life. I still have seminary friends that, that I can readily pray for today in their context. It's a glorious thing. I mean, you know, they're, they're available. Just find, find them and, and make them part of your prayer life. So what do we do? What, you examine the preaching. Okay, let's just do that. Let's just deal with that context for a moment. Examine the preaching. That's your job. But in doing so, if, if, if Scripture is being preached then you prepare your heart to hear God and realize that God will be speaking through men that you know to be fallible and weak and full of flaws and prone to error and prone to wander. But you come to hear God. When these weak, fallible men are speaking and they're, and they're speaking scriptural truth, they're speaking in context, they're taking a historical, grammatical understanding of Scripture and to the best of their flawed ability. They are speaking and letting the text say what it says. You plan to hear from God. You know what that does? That removes you from nitpicking. That removes you from refusing to hear it. That removes you, removes you from despising it or holding it in contempt because you can't attach it to the fallible guy. Attach it to God. Now, again, you must assess. If Scripture is not being taught, then you need to deal with it. That's the church's responsibility. Otherwise, you pray and you prepare to hear from God and hear it all. Later, we're going to see they heard all that Peter had to say. Don't just pick out the parts you like or that suit you or that's comfortable with you. You have your soul prepared to hear it all. And know that when the Word of God is communicated from the pulpit. It is God you are hearing. Okay? Prepare that way. Now, I said we'd get through a little more than that today, didn't I? But I'm fallible. I failed. The Word of God will not fail you. So there's a little peek inside to Cornelius. But I want you to understand, was a believer... And now he's going to have that faith made whole because the gospel of Jesus Christ is coming his way. And it's going to come to him, all his household, and everybody else he can gather in that place. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for uh, this beautiful, sweet picture that we can see that uh, you are no respecter of persons. And therefore, if we are, then we think we know something that you don't know, which is uh, um, <clears throat> absurdity. So would you turn our hearts uh, to know um, and trust you and to understand in, in the fullest degree 
and our context and our setting and our time as we minister this truth sweetly that there is no partiality with God, nor should there be any partiality with us. Thank you that you extend your gospel to the nations. And we pray that you would tune our hearts rightly to that reality, that you are a God of grace and that your grace has no limits, that your grace is accessible to the nations. And we praise you for that. And we ask that you would take us and that you would minister your word sweetly into our hearts, that we would lay hold of it, that we might know you more fully, and that we might trust you, and that we might, by your strength, walk in obedience to you and live out our lives in a way that brings glory to your name and that we might be so and uh, so consumed with your word that we would go forth and carry your gospel as your servants as your children as those bound to you in grace and that we might um, honor you with our lives and our worship We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.